Hello, and welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker, and this season we are exploring the intersection of race and voting rights. Listeners of the podcast might remember the conversation of our season premiere when we compared historical and contemporary trends. An interesting point was brought up. Namely, there is a very real possibility that even more than party trends, a generational shift is coming in terms of voting and values reflected in elections. In essence, younger voters do not align with some of the past and current policies and approaches especially those in the areas of social justice. So today we're going to try and gain some additional insight of the younger voting demographic. Specifically, we're going to look at the state of voting on college campuses. We're so glad to be joined today by two guests who work directly with those young adults. The Reverend Kevin Matthews is a friend and colleague who for more than 15 years has served as the Episcopal chaplain for St. Mary's House in Greensboro, North Carolina, which serves universities in the Greensboro area, including UNC Greensboro, as well as Guilford and Greensboro colleges. Though many served by St. Mary's House are students in regional universities, young adults from every walk of life are welcomed. Members of St. Mary's House are deeply involved in their community, including in several areas related to social justice. Carmen Liniero Lopez is the program manager for the Students Learn Students Vote Coalition's Ask Every Student Initiative. There's a mouthful, but we'll get back to that. Students Learn Students Vote is the national hub and largest nonpartisan network in the United States dedicated to increasing student voter participation. Its Ask Every Student program is a national joint initiative that facilitates collaboration between campus leaders and nonprofit partners to help campuses ask every student to participate in the democratic process and achieve full student voter registration. Welcome, Kevin and Carmen. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. So I'm going to begin with Carmen and ask you, how engaged are college-age voters in the election process? And is their current state of involvement different from in years past? Sure. Uh, well, again, thank you for having us. Uh, I'm really excited to be part of this conversation, especially with your community. I think it's a fascinating uh, conversation we're going to have, and I look forward to hearing what your listeners think. I'd say that um, and I think a lot of folks who work in this space would agree that college students have always been involved in the political process in different ways. Uh, the Reverend here comes from a community that is most uh, incredibly historically involved with the Greensboro sit-ins. Uh, I personally used to work in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where there were also sit-ins back in the 60s. So I think college students have always been part of the political process. Uh, while voting has been at historically high rates since the 2018 election, and I hope to see, I hope, I think a lot of us hope to see those similarly record-breaking rates continue this election and in 2024. Uh, 
college students have always cared about their country and their future. And it's just manifested in different ways, sometimes due to their legal rights and uh, sometimes just to what is easiest to accomplish and attain. Mm. So I think that's um, a good way to begin with you, um, Kevin, um, talking about uh, the activism of college students. But is there activism, do you find that their activism is as high and as engaging now as it was, say, 15 years ago when you began your work at the campuses at St. Mary's? Well, I think we're at a um, unique moment in time because of the pandemic. It's a, um, that, that, um, that skews just about everything we do it's a, um, at this point. So um, I would say to a certain extent, no, it's not as high. I'm not seeing it as high on campus. There will always be groups that, uh, um, that are very strongly involved. Um, and there are student groups like a, a Democratic group and the Republican and the Libertarian and a few others out there that's a, um, that I can't even mention their name at this point. It's a, um, so they're always very active. It's a, um, and, they, and, and, and they get people signed up to vote probably better than anybody on campus does, frankly. But, um, but um, in terms of where students are right now, what we're seeing a lot more of is that they're simply trying to get solid, their feet on solid ground again. It's a, um, and and uh, in the sense that um, they're having trouble making community, it's and finding community. It's a, um, they're, um, they're, bewildered sort of by college in some ways. Last year, for instance, we realized that all the sophomores coming in were just then going to class. It's a, um, so they were really freshmen in terms of operating on a college campus. So, it, um, it's, uh, so there's a lot of that. It's a, um, just trying to um, deal with the new reality it's a, um, that um, we're in. There's a huge amount of depression that's a um, an anxiety on campus. So uh, a lot of stuff that's just very personal for them that's making it difficult for them uh, to reach out. That doesn't mean they don't have opinions. That's a, they certainly have opinions on political issues. I think I think right now the, the making that step towards um, getting directly involved is I, I think it's just a little bit harder. It's a, for them to focus the, in those areas. Just yeah. It's a um, and and let's face it. Um, it's difficult for college students anyway. It's a, um, and, and some of the reasons we've had low numbers of, of, of particularly actual voting, it's a, um, is that most of them have moved out of their communities. It's a, um, and so um, the question becomes, do they vote in a new community where they know nothing about the politics because they've just moved to that city or town? It's a, um, or do they vote in their hometown, which involves getting online and finding out how to get a, a ballot, a mail-in ballot, uh, you know, and, and a lot of them have never voted before. So that, so we make it difficult in some ways for them to, to be involved. That's a, um, and a lot of them get lost in that. It's a, at least the, the first time around, particularly. That's a, so, um, so yeah, I, right now, I, I think we're, we're just seeing um, them trying to ground themselves more than anything else. So given this post-pandemic era that we find ourselves in, how do you meet the moment of encouraging uh, young adults and many of whom are participating in this process for the very first time to exercise their right to vote? 
St. Mary's House is certainly clear um, about um, voting as a part of uh, uh, what it means to be a Christian. It's a, um, so and although our group, uh, frankly, at this point in time is full of students who claim all sorts of belief systems, and, and, and to be honest, it's a, um, but um, that it is simply a part of how you affect your world. It's a, um, and um, that it's something people need to do just as, as part of being a part of the, the community and a part of the culture. And then, so you, you go back from, if, you know, if they're struggling with community, this is a part of being in community. It's a, um, is caring for who the leadership is. It's a, um, so uh, that's where I start. It's a, um, and um, we're, we're very, we have to be very careful about um, partisanship. It's a, um, so we don't uh, um, uh, tell people who, who to vote for. It's a, but we certainly talk about issues. And I'm, so I'm going to pivot to Carmen. So Carmen, how do you feel? Um, how do you feel um, about getting students engaged in, in voting as they're trying to assimilate into college campus and college life? I've always found uh, that students uh, believe voting is harder than it is. And at the same time that there are, uh, there's political rhetoric that is trying to make it seem harder than it is, either um, just in impressions or in actively seeking legislation that will make it harder for college students to vote, even though the Supreme Court has said on numerous occasions that it is a college student's right to vote where they go to school. Um, I actually graduated from Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts about 15 years ago. So uh, when you mentioned about the change over the course of 15 years, I thought, oh, wow, this is a very similar timeline. Um, Williamstown is a very rural community in Massachusetts. And my experience even then was that my peers did not know how easy it was to vote. And I had just accidentally fallen because I had a really great boss in a, a, a volunteer position with a local campaign. And I had learned that it was easy to vote. I knew what my values were. I'd done work on behalf of those values. And I realized even then that a lot of young people had no idea how to vote, sometimes what they were gonna be voting for, uh, what, who made the greatest difference in their lives. So I eventually ended up in this role as program manager for Ask Every Student, which works with colleges and universities to create the infrastructure that will educate literally every single student on their campus through a one-on-one -on -one or a small group conversation about how they can register to vote in their communities and eventually what they'll be voting on and how they can enact their values, regardless of what they are, up and down the ballot by casting a ballot or by voicing an opinion if they are ineligible to vote. Wow. So is this something that is a national program um, that is on, on how many college campuses approximately, will you say, that you're working with at any given time? So we work with our... The Ask Every Student program is a national network of 285 campuses right now. A number in, in uh, North Carolina, actually. Um, 
and uh, we work with them to a varying degree, but we create a range of tools uh, using a, a, a design process called human-centered design, which involves a lot of focus groups and a lot of user feedback. Uh, and we create a set of tools that universities can use to arm their students to participate in our democracy at varying levels as the students feel comfortable or feel eligible to do so. Do you think that post-pandemic, Carmen, um, students are looking at issues in a much more personal way as opposed to maybe sort of a a global way that maybe some of them did in the past. And you brought up initially about the sit-ins and you know the social unrest of the 60s, let's say, and other issues that have come up. But is this a time when students are really looking at, you know, um, student, student loans being written off, the debt that they're acquiring through college, um, what has happened to them during the pandemic of being socially isolated and all of that. Is that, do you, do you hear conversations that suggest that that is impacting the way that they're looking at how they'll vote this time? That's a really exciting question. I think um, uh, it reveals, uh, or it, it's exciting to me because it allows us to talk about um, a generation that is much more aware of mental health issues and much more ready to address and uh, look for resources in mental health, which is really, you know, the most personal uh, issue you can have. And uh, for sure, in terms of financial aid and student loans, that is an issue that has risen because the cost of schools has risen and federal aid has not kept up with that. Um, that said, a big change, even from my own time in university just 15 years ago, the world is a lot smaller because of cell phones and because of access to the internet. So I'm seeing both students uh, access um, more perspectives and therefore being aware of more issues all over the world and at the same time more mindful of their own personal well-being in some ways because of the horrible isolation or very um impactful isolation of the last few years under the pandemic mm. so kevin i know that you spoke two moments ago about mental health and how many students are being impacted um, by, um, you know, this sense of isolation over these last couple of years and all of that. So in terms of the initiatives that you have, right, where you're talking to about issues, national issues, I presume, on your college campus, how does their, um, how does their, their sense of isolation um, and their therefore reliance, heavy, heavy reliance on social media also impact the conversations that you're now trying to have with students? Well, uh, well that's a bunch of <laughs> questions right there. Um, one is unfortunately their, in, their, their yeah, connection with social media appears to be one of the problems that, that uh, in, increases the mental health. And once that social media uh, um, uh, uh, activity increases to somewhere about two hours a day or more. 
it's a, um, then they start to see numbers of, of mental health issues rise. So, uh, so it actually is it's caught right up in that. It's a, um, but the other thing they see is they, they go to, and Carmen made a reference to this, they go to the mental health clinic, the, the, you know, the, the medical clinic on, on campus, um, and they get told they can have an appointment in a month and a half. It's a, um, and they can have two per semester. It's a, because that's all that the, the staff they have there to, to do it. And uh, this is not to, to, to rat, to, 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 to uh, um, a complaint about the, the, the campuses. The campuses can't keep up. They hire more people and they hire more people and they hire more people and they can't literally just can't keep up with the demand. It's a, um, so, um, uh, so when these needs aren't, needs aren't getting met, it's a, uh, then yeah, it affects them greatly. It's a, um, but it's also a moment to say, it's a, um, who's making the decisions about money in your college campus? It's a, uh, and why don't we have enough money that to hire the, uh, the, the people we need to help you? It's a, um, and, and let's talk about that. And let's, you know, that's a voting issue. It's a, it's a big voting issue in, in state, in state politics. It's a, it's a, um, in, in, in particularly in this state. It's a, um, it's, uh, and, and part of that is um, that uh, money is allocated by student, per student. It's a, um, well, guess what happened after uh, the pandemic? Numbers went down. It's a, uh, and so all of a sudden, it's a, uh, campuses are cutting, you know, staff members right, left, and center. It's a, um, and so they've got even fewer resources to help students, even though the need is actually increasing. So, if we talk about then impediments to voting, I think most people who would be listening to this podcast are thinking that there, there is legislation that is creating most of the impediments uh, around voting, right, for on college campuses. We've seen that in the past few years. Is that a correct assessment, um, Carmen? Or is it, or is it something else that is going on within the students and within the environment on the campus that's really creating a larger impediment to voting and the voting process? I, I would say a major impediment is this lack of knowledge. However, that is a construction, civics education in K through 12 education has gone down tremendously in the last several decades. Here in California, where I'm based, um, when my uh, partner's mother was a high school student here, they had to take two years of, of, of civics in the 60s. Now, students have a choice of either one semester of economics or one semester of civics. What do you think most people choose? Most people choose economics because they think it has to do with business and making money. And that's not what economic, economics is very <laughs> esoteric and not really going to help you be the next Steve Jobs. But so one, there's that this uh, movement away from civics education in K through 12, but focusing on the college uh, students on um, an issue that has also risen that is a legal barrier to students voting is photo identification. A lot of college students do not have registered vehicles in their college community so their address on their license may not match their registered voting address and that is an issue that affects 
people beyond students. This affects veterans, these affects the unhoused, these affects all sorts of transient communities. So they're not just college issues, they're issues that affect all sorts of marginalized communities. So 100% voter ID is an actual issue. And also the cutting down of uh, polling locations, the um, like rising uh, need for uh, barriers to what is an appropriate voting location. Oh, it has to have uh, 56 parking spaces, per polling booth or all of these uh, very specific rules that make it more difficult for, for a place like a college or perhaps even a church to bring to their community a voting location. So I'd say just off the top of my head, uh, voter ID and polling locations are major issues that directly affect college students. And they're all compounded by the fact that students have not received the civics education they received in the past. Wow. Okay. That's a those are some major challenges. And Kevin, that I want to layer on top of that, the idea of racial justice and to ask what role do you think racial justice plays in voter engagement on college campuses? Um, well, I'm in Greensboro, <laughs> South North Carolina. That's a, um, green, this is the Greensboro where um, gerrymandering and just a couple of years ago, that attempted to vote um, North Carolina A&T into two different voting districts so they could divide the campus. So you literally had a case where one campus dorm it's a, um, was to vote in one district and the dorm right next to it was to vote in a different district. And the whole intention of that uh, gerrymandering was to um, dilute the, the black vote. It's a, um, I mean, cause this happened in the black community too. So it was, it was, I mean, it was wider than the campus, but that was, that was an absurd move that it made. And of course, fortunately, the courts threw it out it's a, um, and, and, and they had to go back and redraw it. But it's a, um, well, we all heard about that, not just A&D. <laughs> Everybody in, 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 in Greensboro heard about that, including the students at, at, at UNC Greensboro, it's on Guilford College, and, 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 and people were incensed. And if, that, uh, if, if, if there was a single motivator that year, it's a, um, it was probably that event. It's a, um, it's a, I, I'm not sure I, right now uh, because of the recent activity around uh, student loans and, and, and uh, the uh, forgiving a part, partial forgiveness of some of them. It's a, I think that's one of the issues that that is um, uh, uh, affecting um, how that how how students it's a, um, view this. And of course, uh, those issues are predominant in. It's a uh, poorer communities. It's a uh, minority communities. It's a uh, uh, communities of first generation students. Uh, my campus is fifty four percent. It's a uh, first gen uh, students. It's uh, going to college. It's a uh, um, so they're they're looking at the money very very tightly. It's a uh, um, and they see on the one hand something finally done, but not nearly enough to affect many, many people who have 50, 60, $70,000 worth of, of, of uh, um, student debt that's coming out of college. It's a, um, so, um, and, and as long as the, the uh, college, even just for an in-state, it's a, um, a state college, as long as the, the um, cost of college is going to be as high as it is, it is going to continue to shut out people of color 
that's a, um, a, a people of various minorities, that's a, um, the, the poor, that's a, um, the, the, the homeless uh, people uh, who are immigrants who've just come to this country first generation, it, they're gonna be shut out. It's a, so it is very much a, um, a race issue. It's a, um, that um, it's kind of hard to ignore, frankly, and yet we do. It's a, so. so Carmen, how do you and your organization um, because you're looking at it too uh, uh, across an even wider spectrum, right? Then beyond Greensboro, how does your organization respond to um, to social justice issues um, and how it is impacting the college vote? Uh, first, I, I do want before we leave Greensboro, I do want to give a major in the, this area. I want to give a major shout out to uh, North Carolina A and T and Director of Leadership and Engagement Tiffany C. Wright there, who is an active member of the Ask Every Student community and has led the way in helping us understand how we can best support historically Black colleges and universities. North Carolina A and T is actually the largest HBCU in the country. And they really lead the way, not just for HBCUs, not just for MSIs, but for colleges across the board in how to create civically engaged community members for the rest of their lives. And uh, Director of Leadership and Engagement, Tiffany C. right there, y'all gotta book her. She is a real leader in this space. And she, not only she, but other folks across my career, my short but uh, active career have shown me that uh, racial justice is a part of all social justice issues. And that's how many people in my generation and most certainly in today's, most of today's college students, Gen Z generation see it. It, racial justice is a part of reproductive justice. Racial justice is a part of environmental justice. Racial justice is most certainly a part of alleviating poverty and improving education, access to nutritious food, access to healthy communities. We understand that in the United States, racial injustice is entrenched across every issue that affects every American's life. And so I think a major thing that we do is prepare administrators and professors and leaders across the collegiate space to engage with students in a way that respects this reality and understand that students will feel this very deeply and that their opinions, which I believe are fact, <laughs> should be respected as valid viewpoints and not just like, oh, you're young, you know, you, this is how you view the earth. But in fact, these, this is how it is. And respecting that is something that we hope to empower our professors and administrators to do. Wow. That's a daunting task, it sounds like, but I'm sure that your organization is, is really up for the, the role. So then what does becoming engaged because one of the things that I liked that you just said was about preparing them to do this for a lifetime, right? We don't want this to be a one and done. Like, well, I happen to be on the college campus. My friends went to vote. So I went to vote too, but I may never vote again. I mean, this hopefully is a trajectory of a lifetime commitment to performing their civic duty. It, that's the way I think most of us were taught 
uh, uh, to, to view voting. So do you feel um, that there's a sense of duty to do that kind of work as you are also trying to do get them to vote in you know one cycle after another? Absolutely. I think voting is just like any other habit. If it's really well entrenched as a young person, it lasts forever. And this is especially true when parents bring their children to the polls. And I can't reach, you know, every parent, uh, but whether it's in your congregation, whether it's at the YMCA, however, I always try to encourage parents to bring their little ones to the polls, because you'll talk to people years later, you'll talk to folks who are in their 60s, who remember this, who sometimes who remember the first time their mother was allowed to vote at all. And when she was already of adulthood age. So the earlier you get started, the better, even if it's just as a plus one to the polls. Uh, so it becoming entrenched, even just as a uh, a civic duty that enables the mind to reflect on a time and time again and seek out opportunities to cast ballots. So if you're bringing your little one to the polls, they're also more likely to vote in the primaries. And if you're making a, a voting a part of your collegiate culture, if being a voter is part of being an Aggie or is part of being another mascot, uh, it's very much going to be a part of their personal identity. So a big thing that we try to do is incorporate voting as part of the university's cultural identity as a whatever the mascot, it's your mascot here, votes. Uh, make sure that it's a part of your cultural identity and not just a chore, um, but something that you're proud of and makes you who you are. Mm, I like it. Kevin, as a part of um, your um, religious affiliation there, just looking at it globally, how do you um, recommend that students um, view their responsibility for voting from a kind of a religious point of view or faithful faith as a part of their faith walk? Um, well, I would say a couple of things. One is that um, the, um, the government um, deals with a lot of issues that are issues that we're concerned about too. Um, climate change, that's a um, reproductive rights I mentioned before, that's a, um, the, the poor, that's a, and we, and as a, Society, a lot of the ways that we attempt to address these issues are through government. It's a, um, or sometimes we attempt not to address the issues depending on what the government is. It's a, um, and uh, so we start at that point, which is this is, um, th this is one of the, these are some of the ways voting it's a, um, for folks uh, are some of the ways that you can affect how much we are addressing these issues. It's a, um, and in fact, there are more effective ways of addressing the issues than perhaps the 2% the, uh, that uh, the Episcopal Church is of the, of the, of the uh, population in this country. It's a, uh, we're going to be more effective um, voting for people who will align with, the, with our concerns. It's a, um, so uh, what, I, what I do find, though, with students often is that their, their, their journey to voting and to the, the political process in general starts um, not with, um, with, with that process, but with more direct service. 
it's a um, for instance working on a, uh, at a food pantry or it's a uh, something like that because at some point they have to start recognizing uh, the issue that um, that food pantry is going to be there for a thousand years unless something changes. It's a, uh, when you can get them to start having that conversation, then they start realizing, oh, I've got to get involved it's, uh, in these other ways it's, uh, uh, to, it's, uh, uh, to make things change so that that food pantry becomes unnecessary. It's, uh, um, uh, so uh, for many students, that's the way in, that's uh, uh, into the political process. It's not, um, well, my parents were a Democrat or, or Republican or whatever, that's, uh, because in fact, it's, uh, they're not sure how they feel about their parents in, in many cases. So that, uh, that doesn't do it. It's, uh, um, or if it does, it sends them to the other party. Uh, but uh, they're not just accept accepting that uh, because my family has voted X, we're gonna do the same thing. It's, uh, I find they're a lot more critical than even my generation was. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So it's, uh, um, they're a lot more critical and not just accepting on, on face value. It's, uh, uh, but then that also means you have to sell them on why they want to get involved in the political process. What's going to happen it's, uh, um, out of that? And sometimes that making that sale is a little challenging, <laughs> so particularly uh, when uh, in those times when um, elections have gone in a direction that they really didn't want to see them go. That's, uh, um, or they see voters, uh, uh, politicians doing that's uh, um, things that that um, just really anger and disgust them. That's, uh, um, I, I think um, the biggest one right now recently has probably been all the voter fraud stuff. That, that my students have been incensed by some of the idiocy that they've seen around voter fraud that's, uh, uh, and the attempts to, to prove non-existent voter fraud out there. So, um, what's that? And it, it's a two-edged sword. They get angry, but they also feel like, I, do I want to have anything to do with this process? <laughs> as ugly as it looks. So. so I think, oh, so sometimes overcoming the sense kind of almost of cynicism is mm -hmm. also a competing entity in how you get, encourage them to work through that um, you know, those issues around voter fraud, non-existent voter fraud. I want to be very clear about that because for the most part, as far as we've been told and through these episodes, even it's really kind of non-existent. Yeah. It's particularly hard when, you know, I'm feeling some of the same things they are, frankly. <laughs> so, you know, but, but voting is, voting was instilled. I was one of those children whose parents took them to vote. So it's, a, um, yeah, uh, that's just a part of who I am. It's a, it's a, well, I think one of the exciting things, too, is that recently we've seen a couple of there are a couple of uh, Gen Zers that are actually in contention for Congress this fall. Um, so I would wonder if that, too, might be a motivating factor, not necessarily for them to get involved in politics, but for them to show up and support now um, some young people of their generation who are now deciding that the only way they can make change is that they have to really get involved. You know, I have to admit, I have not seen a lot of that in my students. It's, I'm not saying it doesn't happen elsewhere. Carmen, you may have some, some notice it's about that. I have not. And I think part of that may be because some of who some of the uh, North Carolina young people running for, for office have been. <laughs> so, so that may be that may be local to us. So, Carmen, you might have some better response to that. What I do you've think, seen. I do think... Um... 
when young people run, it's very exciting. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a, immediately jumps to mind as someone who is very close in age to me and actually uh, very, lived very close to where my family lives in New York. Um, but I think more importantly, it's relatable folks and making the political process, the folks who are leaders in politics, inclusive of the kind of people you see every day, folks who did not, you know, go to boarding school or I don't know, people who are uh, part of the middle class, people who took out loans, people who have to talk about uh, unmaking these issues because they affect them. So I do think that college students, when they see politicians who are able to speak from firsthand experience, having medical debt, of having college debt, of having to have used the pantry in their church, the food pantry in their church, of having to go to the soup kitchen in their community. When people are able, when the people who represent us, not just represent us in Congress, but represent us as human beings, I do see that college students, and I think everybody benefits from being represented by folks like that. So let me ask this question. Do you notice that, is there a difference between, is there a gender gap in terms of voting or is it pretty evenly divided between men and women who vote? I actually have a really, uh, um, I, it, there is a gender gap. Uh, women uh, have historically, since they have gained the right to vote, since white women and then black women and brown women have gained the right to vote, have always voted at higher rates than their male counterparts. But um, at least uh, from uh, studies around the 2020 election, we found that a lot of women, except for Black women, were less likely than their male counterparts to say they were going to vote. The only people and men were more likely to say they were going to vote than actually reflected the rates. So men were, more, were like overstating, women were understating, except for Black women. Black women were the only ones who were accurately reflecting how they were voting. And I thought that was very interesting and very reflective of our respective cultures. And I thought hmm, maybe more of us have to be seizing our voice. Uh, maybe more women have to be comfortable admitting that they're gonna cast a ballot. Why is that something not to share? And maybe we have to hold men more accountable to cast a ballot. But yeah, there is definitely a gender gap. And at least in 2020, that was, uh, what the studies showed, and it was hilarious. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it would be interesting to know why that is. What, what, what is the thing about using our voices, right? Um, but I know that now there, you know, there is a, a school of thought that polls are really almost useless because people will say all kinds of things to pollsters that don't accurately reflect um, what it is they're actually thinking and feeling. So I, I, I would imagine that for you, Carmen, that could make your work a little more challenging um, in terms of when students are indicating whether or not they're going to be a part of the process, can you really trust what you're hearing? I, I don't listen to polls. Um, I, I'm more likely to listen to polls after the fact, after the election, to see how the comparison showed up, more to make these 
these observations like oh how funny that the only people who are honest in this uh but so i i don't really i don't listen to polls however i do find that when students are asked about whether they're going to vote if they are asked specifically how they plan to vote and you help walk them through a voting plan I'm going to vote on this day at this time at this location. I'm going to bring my auntie. I'm going to bring my friend. I'm going to get there by bike. I'm going to use one of those free Ubers. I'm going to take the bus that my school is offering. When you walk students through a voting plan, that's what really works. It doesn't, I don't know how much we're going to learn from whether they say they're going to vote or not, but they're definitely more likely to turn out if you help walk them through the entire plan. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, finally, let me just ask Kevin, going back to your college campuses, um, do they vote on campus? And it, do most students vote on campus or do they actually go into the cities and vote in um, public, you know, in, in public polling places for lack of a better word? Well, in UNC Greensboro, the polling place is on campus. So it's, uh, and it's uh, conveniently at the gym. So um, they, they get a lot of people just by location. It's a, uh, and I think um, that they have a, a fairly high turnout as a result of it being right there. It's a, um, the early voting is not it's available on campus. I think you go into the city for that or a few places, but, it's a, um, but they do use it. They do take advantage of it. It's a, um, and the student groups take advantage of telling people, <laughs> look, you don't have to go anywhere to vote. It's, a, it's somewhere that half of you are going anyway. So um, Greensboro College, Guilford College, well, Guilford College is kind of an activist college anyway. So it's not a, 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 that's not a hard move for them. It's a, um, Greensboro College is, is less, it's a, um, de decidedly so. It's a, um, and uh, to be honest, I don't know where their voting poll is. It's not on campus, I know that. It's mm -hmm. a, uh, so I can't speak too much about those students. It's a, um, but yes, uh, as always, making it easier, it's a, it increases the likelihood that people are going to vote. It's a, I mean, that's just the reality. That's not just students, that's everybody. That's why um, all these attempts to uh, curtail weekend voting and early voting, uh, limited number of days, uh, you know, are direct attacks on people who work at jobs that's a, um, that don't uh, um, uh, allow them time off to go vote or it's a, you know, uh, Dock themselves. Um, the evening voting is cut out when they do all of those things, and it's a um, then they're aimed at certain people. They're aimed at people who work hourly jobs. Well, we know minorities work more uh, more of those hourly jobs. They're aimed at people with minimum wage jobs. It's a um, to make it impossible for them. It's a um, to get to a polling place. It's a. Hmm. So it sounds like everybody has a lot of work cut out for them in the next few weeks to get as many people to the polls as possible. And um, I just want to ask this last question before we wrap up. And that is, what can the average person do to help support efforts to engage voters on college campuses? Is there something all of us should be doing to, to influence and um, our young people on college campuses? And we'll start with you, Kevin, and then follow with Carmen. Um, well, I'll say the things that basically I was just talking about is to resist the, the, the uh, temptation to uh, make it more difficult by cutting hours, cutting weekends. It's a, um, and 
uh, and recognize that not everybody works at the schedule or gets time off that, that um, the middle class people do. It's a, um, to, that we want people to vote, we have to make it possible for them to vote. Perfect, thank you. And Carmen? Yeah, I definitely agree. Advocate for those policies, more polling locations, uh, more hours. And then also you can uh, support organizations that work in your respective communities. Our coalition, for example, is made up of hundreds of organizations. Most of them are local and work specifically to grow the student vote. So whoever wants can visit our website, slsvcoalition.org and visit our partner directory. And you can plug in your state and you can search for local organizations in your state to get plugged in with. And you can find, um, you can uh, either volunteer your time with them. Maybe you wanna donate to some of those amazing organizations, especially those great local organizations. Uh, I won't name names, but I know that there's some great ones in North Carolina. I know that there's some great ones working with specific marginalized communities. I know I work at a great one. And then there's also a number of really exciting national mobilization holidays. Like just yesterday was actually National Voter Registration Day. So maybe some of you guys saw when you engaged on social media that like your Facebook or whatever asked you to register a vote. We actually have upcoming National Voter Education Week, uh, the, the first full week in October, which is a week long campaign that helps us uh, voters across the board make sure that they have the information and resources they need to vote with confidence in November. So check out National Voter Education Week. I believe it's nview.org and uh, sign up and share that content on your social media or just um, be prepared to share information with folks that you meet and definitely be comfortable having direct adult conversations with the student voters and the young people in your life. Nobody is too young to hear a little bit of hope about democracy. Give them a little bit of hope about democracy in spite of what they're hearing, because the people that they know and trust are the ones they're most likely to listen to, way more than anything they hear on the radio or on TV. Uh, so have conversations and be prepared by maybe accessing those tools from National Voter Education Week or from your local organizations. That's great. Thank you for all those amazing resources. That is very helpful. And uh, that's all the time that we have for this episode. But I do want to thank my guests again, Kevin Matthews, the Reverend Kevin Matthews from St. Mary's House, and Carmen Liniero Lopez from Students Learn Students Vote Coalition. So thank you all very, very much. I also want to thank of always my wonderful producer, Christine McTaggart. And we hope that we'll see you the next time. Thank you.